Welcome to the second episode of the Community Renewables podcast. I am Rebecca Freitag. And I am Craig Morris. And in the last episode, we talked about the pioneers who got started even before there was a business model. And in this podcast, and I think I can speak normal again, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, if you want, go ahead. Yeah. And in this podcast, we will discover the secret sauce of that business model. And I'm very honored to announce that we will get to listen and to talk with Hans-Josef Fell. He is one of the fathers of that law and he will be our star of the show. He will be at the end. Before that, we talk with two friends of Craig's he throws Frisbee with. Well, they uh, are actually energy policy experts as well. Also very good Frisbee throwers. <laughs> okay, then, well, we leave them in. <laughs> well, so... These are Toby Couture and David Jacobs. But we're going to start off with Dieter Mensen of a Community Wind Project. Dieter Mensen is an English teacher and also the founder of a citizen-owned wind power operator. He made early use of the new business model. Yeah, so maybe we should first explain what this business model is, like what feed-in tariffs are. Um, so in 1991, there was a law passed in Germany, it's called Feed and Act. And basically it guaranteed feed and tariffs. So you got a fixed tariff for your renewable energy power generation. And then later in 2000, there was the famous German EEG. It's the German Renewable Energy Sources Act. And that guaranteed you that feed and tariffs for over 20 years and for all sorts of renewable energy sources. And it guaranteed a grid connection. So before we listen to Dita, I want to make sure that we have all the jargon down that we need uh, to understand what he's saying. And one of the things he mentions is a 450 euro job, which is a, a, a very specifically German thing. So Rebecca, can you tell us what that is? In Germany, you can have a job on, on the side You can earn up to 450 euros a month and you don't have to pay income taxes on that or like increase your health insurance. So Craig, you studied linguistics. In the last episode, we had Josef Pesch, who has a PhD in English. And right now we are going to listen to Dieter Mensen, who is an English teacher. I'm just wondering here, do you, I don't know, is that part of your training to get passion for renewables? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I don't know if the teachers are driving the whole revolution here, but uh, it is what it is. <laughs> okay, so enough talking. Now, without further ado, here's Dieter Mensen. What kind of projects do you have today? Okay, Mussevind is a small citizen-owned wind, uh, wind power operator. We started in 1998 um, with uh, 55 people Uh, who had uh, sort of put some money into the into the pot and um, we put up three turbines on a site close to where I live here and this had taken us seven years of uh, pressure on on the local level 
to get planning permission. Mm -hmm. uh, initially, we had started off in 1991, planning to build just one small 150 kilowatt turbine, but we didn't get planning permission. And by the time we got it, things had moved on and uh, we had thought a bit more bigger. Seven, um, seven years is a long time. It was a long time, yes, but that was due to planning and people not being used to mm -hmm. obstacles in the landscape and this sort of thing. Okay, so um, when you say that you had to put pressure on people... On I local mean, politicians. Local and, politicians, yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, we I had mean, to go all the way, hmm, right from the bottom. Hmm. That's because there was no approval procedure in place uh, for these exactly. things in 91. Exactly, okay, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But what about yeah. the population, the local population? Were they... Oh, they, they were very supportive. Okay. Uh, and and also the, the, the local council, the, the the village council, they were all all supportive and all decisions were taken unanimously. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, I, I was on the council myself from 1991. I don't know if that helped, but um, <laughs> I'm not necessarily say yes. because I'm, I'm okay. or at the time I was a member of the Green Party and we only had one seat and then two seats on the on the local council. So. Okay. But anyway, no, the support was there. It was the, the, the district level that was uh, causing problems. Um, okay, so not even uh, the state level, but the no, intermediate no, no, level. Was, okay. well, that's right, yeah. Okay. Sort of the uh, and, Landkreis, as it's called in German. Yeah, sort of the county um, level or something, yeah. They, that's right. They had to give, give planning permissions. They, they, they were the ones. And they, they put a small, small area, a wind power area in place in their own planning. And that's where we, we put our first three turbines. And mm -hmm. then there was room for another two. So in the year 2000, we put up two more turbines. So we were the first people to put up turbines there, the first five. Uh, if you go there now, there are 26 turbines up and running in that area. And that's all your project? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. We only had the, the first five there. Mm -hmm. And then the first three we sold for a repowering project in 2010, mm -hmm. and they were replaced by by other operators. Um, and the remaining two we we operated for for nearly 20 years and sold them last year because we didn't know how to finance um, the, the 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 maintenance of the turbines. Right. Right. Uh, after the uh, the 20 years of guaranteed feeding in tariff and we we have one more turbine that was built in 2013 also a turnkey thing that um, we bought from uh, another from a developer that has been planning all the other turbines in that area okay um, they're not operating them they just planned them and then sold them off so right. we we bought one one uh, another citizen owned one with about a hundred members Mm -hmm. uh, which we've been operating to, since 2013. And mm -hmm. so during this time in the 90s when this got started, um, mm -hmm. you, you, were you a school teacher at that time? I was a, sc a school teacher working part-time um, because we have had small children. My wife was working part-time, I was working part-time, and I was, as I said, involved in local politics. And in 1991, I just... Um, organized a, a public meeting and said who would be interested in having a turbine 50 odd people attended of which 10 people sort of formed the the nucleus the the limited company that is sort of the 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 heart of the the, the operation of all mm -hmm. this and um, we just kept going ever since okay and what does the investment structure look like there so how, how much did people have to invest Oh, that's, that depends very, mu very much on how much they want to invest there. There was a minimum investment, which I think for the first project was 3,000 German marks. 
for the second project, it was 5,000 euros because we had already switched over to euros in mm -hmm. 2000 for founding the company, although officially we didn't have the euro yet, but you could already found companies okay. on the basis of the euro. And for this last project, it was also 5,000 euros uh, that we did in 2013, 5,000 for local people, 10,000 for people from a little bit further away. Now that these things uh, are up and running, did you have any experience with sort of the popular reactions yeah most people respond positively uh, we've had very few very few feedback from people who say that they they are disturbed by the noise or something we have the advantage that um, the turbines are more than a kilometer away from from uh, the village of mm -hmm. Tiddinghausen mm -hmm. which is the closest and there has no during all the planning process even when the wind power, the, the wind farm was extended uh, by these other operators by, by these other planners there uh, we never had any any public um, initiative or anything like in other places where uh, in a neighboring village there, there had been talk about a wind farm uh, 10 15 years ago and there was very strong resentment and they they really got organized and everything uh, who was planning that project that they protested against um, the same planners that uh, did all the planning around our turbines, okay. not not the ones that we started with. For those, we did all the planning ourselves. It was still a very amateur thing at the right. time. Okay. I remember that I even wrote the assessment for, for the impact on birds myself, although I'm not a biologist, and it was accepted by, by the district council. This sort of thing would be impossible today. I mean, I mean we didn't even right. need expertise on on shadow um, or on, on noise or anything. Right, right. It was just assumed that that was a good place. And um, okay. You know, but nowadays, of course, we, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to plan um, a wind power project myself anymore. Okay. Um, this developer, I mean, that's the one that mm -hmm. you worked with. Uh, that um, we only we, we worked with him on on this last project. Right. Is it is it considered like not a community project? You know, do people think he's coming in to make money off of them or something? Yeah, in that village, definitely. And that one is not a, a Burgerwind Park. That's not a citizen-owned project. And we will probably, or we have the option, let's put it that way. I mean, I'm 68 now. I'm, I'm not sure if I would take responsibility again for organizing all this. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, at the moment, I can imagine starting another wind power project, a citizen-owned wind power project. Is there a new generation coming up to replace you? Uh, not in our company, I'm afraid. Okay, so nobody in the local community or, you know, nobody's children or whatever? Not at the moment. No, my children are far away. Okay. <laughs> They're in Berlin, where you are. Yes. <laughs> All right. Yeah, but it's maybe somebody else's kids. I mean, it's interesting, yeah, you know, yeah, because yeah. nobody, I mean, they would, mm -hmm. your children would now be, I, I'm going to guess, 40-ish. Uh, or 30-ish, uh, yes. Yeah, well, yeah. not not mm -hmm. just yours, though, but everybody's in your group. I mean, right. they, would, they would definitely be adults, but, uh, yeah. and some of them must have stayed in the area, but this was yeah. not handed down. No, no, that's that's maybe that's my fault. I don't know. I haven't. Oh, I'm not saying it's anybody's. Yeah, I'm not saying it's anybody's <laughs> fault. But have 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 you ever thought about why? I've been thinking about it. No, but I, I mean, why? I mean, in other sectors, you know, the mm. the bakers' uh, children become yep. bakers as well, and and so mm. forth. Maybe it's because we're we're a very low cost project. I've been doing this since, um, well, as I said, since 1998. And I'm on what's called a 450 euro job um, <laughs> as the, um, yeah, yeah, you're laughing, but um, I'm happy with that. Yeah, sure. Um, I still had my, my teacher's salary and now I have my teacher's pension. Mm -hmm. 
so I'm 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 fine. And but I don't see anybody wanting to do it for that kind of money. You see. Quack, what's that look on your face? I'm shocked. I mean, did you hear what this guy said? He wrote his own environmental impact assessment. I mean, that is literally what all of these like opponents of wind power are concerned about. And I, and I mean, Dita also says this doesn't happen anymore, right? So I think it was really a time back in the 90s when wind power just, it wasn't a thing. Wind farms, they were just a new thing in the landscape. And so maybe there wasn't even a sector of expertise that had been built up to review the impact on bird life. I don't know. True. Yeah, different times. Another thing he said was this whole 450 euro job business, right? So, I mean, they're not passing this down to the next generation, partly because this was sort of, he was moonlighting, right? Uh, he had his teacher's job and he was doing this on the side. It was a nice hobby. And so there isn't an incentive for this to be passed on to the next generation. So where's the next generation? Yeah. And at the same time, you know, I see that there are corporations, that there are businesses who obviously make profit with renewables. So why should you do something for a 450 euro jobs while others can live off of that? Uh, I'm wondering also if the demographic change plays a role here, because we read a lot that small and medium enterprises in Germany face the same problem, that they have a problem with um, finding junior staff. But at the same time, I see that my generation, probably more than any other generation, looks for a job with purpose. So I think, I can imagine many are willing to, to, to work in the renewable sectors, especially community sectors, but um, then I think it should be more than just a 450 euro job. But there's one more thing I wanted to ask you, Craig. He told us that the average investment by the citizens is a few thousand euros. Is that, is that something representative? Uh, I can tell you about just cooperatives. I, I don't think there is, I don't think we have the numbers for all community energy groups. You know, a lot of them are limited liability companies and so forth. But just for the cooperatives, the average holding per member is about 3,900 euros, okay? And the average minimum holding, so the minimum amount that you have to invest to become a member of the cooperative, is just over 500 euros. So with such small amounts, you can really have a lot of people participating. So let's get back to the business model, to the feed and terrace, and therefore we are having an energy expert on feed and terrace, His name is Toby Couture. He is originally from Canada. He worked for the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in the US. Now he is a consultant in Berlin and advises countries worldwide. He will mention the term PERPA and I want to make sure that you know what this stands for. It stands for Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act. It was passed in the US in 1978. And it is basically about breaking the monopolies of energy companies. But I will not talk too much about that because Toby will explain that pretty clear. Um, later, I will say more about that. Okay, and, and there's one thing that I also want to preface here, and that's that what Toby's going to focus on is this 
it's actually just a few sentences in this document that I had, I don't know, 50 pages or something. It was section 201, for instance, right? And it was just a few sentences, and it caused this revolution in a way, or it, it kick-started this revolution because it allowed people in the U.S. to start making their own uh, renewable energy. And I think partly because this was a bit buried in the document, I think the people who might have otherwise opposed it uh, probably underestimated the threat. In this interview, Craig, you had to be very quiet. It was one of the first interviews I recorded uh, sort of at the beginning of the corona lockdown. And Toby works from home and he's got these two adorable kids like about the age of five. So, you know, they're running around like crazy all day. And we had to record in the evening at like 9 p.m. after the after he had gotten the kids to fall asleep. But they were sitting or sleeping in the next room. And so he was really trying to be very quiet and it really sort of calmed my voice down so we have to whisper now to not wake them up i uh, know the recording's already over so we don't have to be quiet ourselves so toby you popped up on my radar around 2005 and you were already writing about feed-in tariffs do you remember why you initially got interested in the topic feed-in tariffs worked when you look at what was working to actually scale up renewables, um, not just tens of megawatts, not just hundreds of megawatts, but uh, indeed thousands of megawatts, the only policy that was really registering, that was really driving the kind of investment that you see and or you saw in countries like Germany were feed-in tariffs. And that's what really drew my interest from the start. Well, what were you trying to figure out? What's the magic why did feed-in tariffs work as well as they did? The secret sauce is it's bankable. <laughs> and <laughs> and it, that really is it. Um, you need to solve for all the other problems that emerge in a particular market. You need to make sure that the grid operator is actually connecting projects. And you need to make mm -hmm. sure you know, there's a lot of that nitty-gritty stuff. But at the end of the day, it has to be bankable. And I guess one of the reasons why this got started was we wanted to have liberalization in, you know, in all markets, but also in the energy sector itself, right? One of the differences in the energy sector is that, at least as I see it, that the push to liberalization has been much more, much more strident. One of the um, strokes of genius, if I can call it that, baked into PURPA is that it forces incumbent utilities to buy power from other people, other entities, other mm -hmm. producers. That is the beginning of the end of the traditional vertically integrated Monopoly. Monopol monopolist yeah. model. Yeah. And I think for, for people, you know, for people who aren't familiar, who don't necessarily work heavily in the energy sector, I think that's a really important pivot point to understand in history is the move from these centralized monolithic utilities to one where these utilities could, could be forced to buy from somebody other than themselves. And in some cases, at least in the U.S., in the beginning, prices could be negotiated, but the obligation stood. There was an right. obligation to, hand, to, to uh, negotiate in good faith and arrive at a price that was fair to both parties and purchase that power. Many of the elements, you know, when you really look into the origins of PURPA and all the debates that happened around the 
through the, 19, the late 1970s and indeed early 80s as it was being implemented in places like California, you see many of the same debates and arguments that we have been having in the last decade or so, what Germany eventually introduces in the form of what's called cost covering compensation. In other words, the tariffs should be sufficient that you can earn a return on your wind project or your mm -hmm. solar project. So, dear listeners, that was our family-friendly volume. If you had some kids sleeping in the next room... They are probably still sleeping, <laughs> yes. But they won't be sleeping much longer because we're returning to our normal volume. Uh, I liked how Toby said the secret sauce of FITs, feed and tariffs, is that it's bankable. So does that mean it's profitable? Well, actually, let's just go ahead and talk to our next guest, David Jacobs, um, because he kind of answers it anyway. And David will tell us what was there in the 1980s. For example, the California Standard Offered Contracts, or in short, SOCs. We already talked about PURPA. PURPA was about breaking the monopolies of energy utilities. Because usually they were the ones providing all the services from generating to transmitting to distributing and so on. And then suddenly the US or the federal government said, well, you can purchase the power from small producers. But what is the price? And this is what the US federal government left to the states. And then California came up with standard contracts. In the first two contracts, the prices were tied to the oil price, but the oil prices were fluctuating and wind turbine operators were like, um, well, we have long-term investment and can we please have fixed prices? And this is why we find a standard of a contract number four in California that had a fixed payment schedule. This, in a way, when, when Toby, at the end of his interview uh, segment there, he talks about cost-covering remuneration. And this is really what the SOCs in, in California were. So here's my interview with David. Toby has already told us about how important PURPA was. And you wrote a dissertation about sort of how the German EEG came about and, and partly its predecessor, the, the FIDEN Act of 1991. So the Germans were aware of PURPA and sort of drew inspiration from it? Well, I wouldn't... Well, there's some mentioning of PURPA. So when you look at the parliamentary records, um, the discussions they had in Parliament in 1989 and 1990, there's some mention of purpose. So I think one Green parliamentarian mentioned purpose at a certain stage. But actually, when you look at um, the discussion that Germany had in the 1990s, uh, so in, in 1989 and 1990, that was much um, stronger based on the Danish experience because Denmark already had a very similar policy implemented in 1988, so mm -hmm. a year or two earlier. Uh, I mean, when you look at the German EEG or the German Stromeinspeisungsgesetz from 1990, it was based on a percentage of the retail electricity price. So they were saying um, that I think for wind energy, you would get 90% of the retail electricity price, and the retail electricity price at that time was, I, I think, 10 or 11 cents per kilowatt hour the regulated market, so you mm. would get about 10 cents, something like that. So you got 90% of, of the retail rate, and the Danes also exactly. had something like that. 
Yeah, and that's actually um, changed from year to year because the retail electricity price changed from year to year. So you were not 100% sure what you were getting, but since it was attached to this rather stable um, price, um, you had a, a certain level of investment security. And then PURPA, I think, was almost already forgotten. And PURPA did not really lead to a boom in renewables, did it? No, unfortunately, it did not. It could have. <laughs> there was there were some really um, promising signs of it. Um, Purple was actually quite a sophisticated and uh, quite of a future-looking policy. I mean, when you look at the Purple Act itself, it's not so um, groundbreaking because it only says that there's a room for special remuneration for renewable energies. Hmm. But then when you look at the interpretation of Purple, first of all by FERC, by the Federal Electricity Regulatory Commission, who argued that um, renewable energy producers could be remunerated not only based on the short-term avoided cost of utilities, but also based on the long-term avoided cost, which was quite a big difference because at that time we were in the in the second oil crisis, so there was some outlook that um, energy prices would increase quite sharply. So if you then looked at um, the long-term development of energy prices, you could actually pay renewables quite a high price. Mm. And then we had California putting up this very attractive standard offer number four, and that was in 1984. Right, so Sta- standard not- offer contracts, SOCs. Exactly, and they had like different types of standard contracts, and number four, I think there were a total of five or six, and number four was really the one that all of the utility was most interested in, because it actually offered what was later, actually in 2000 in Germany, what was the key element of a, well-functioning, very effective feed-in tariff. And that was, um, you were paying the tariffs um, for a 15-year period, so um, looking into the future and already indexing prices Mm -hmm. um, into the future. You had a a fixed payment, which was based on the um, long-term avoided cost of the utility. So these two um, design elements, fixed payment plus um, long duration of payment, were already available for a very short period of time in California in 1984. And that triggered huge interest by the industry. So you had um, all of a sudden, based on the standard offer number four, you had a pipeline in 1984 in California of 15 gigawatts, which was 15 gigawatts. Okay. 15 gigawatts. So yeah. that's, um, well, that would be as if you would have a pipeline of Many years in Germany, actually. Yeah, like five <laughs> yeah. years of a pipeline in Germany, yeah. Well, and that was that was really when renewable energy projects were still... Didn't exist, small right. Yeah. ...wind projects were, were really small scale. Pisa was, was small. You have to remember that the world um, installed PV capacity, I think, even even in the year 2000. It was counted like, in megawatts, yeah. It, wasn't it was counted, counted in, in megawatts. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. counted in gigawatts at all. But yeah. am I understanding correctly, you said SOCs in California were still based on the avoided cost for the uh, utility. Yeah, but they were based on the long-term avoided cost projected into the future. Okay. And since um, at that time when they were putting these standard contracts in place, there was still the expectation that prices would increase. You actually saw escalating tariffs you would get every year. So they would actually go up from 1984 all the way, well, until 15 years later, until 1999. And this, of course, was a very attractive um, business for all of the renewable energy project developers. Right. And it was so attractive that you had this 15 um, gigawatt pipeline, and then um, the legislators in California, of course, got cold feet because 
they would have been too much. That, yeah, if they would have signed all of these contracts um, with escalating prices for the next 15 years, that um, would have led to a substantial increases in the in the electricity costs in the Californian system. Right. And this is why they retroactively canceled all of them again a year later in 1985. Oh. But I always <laughs> think it would have been, I mean, that would have been the key measure against climate change. We would have had the momentum that we saw in Germany in, in 2000 or 2004, mm. um, 15, 15 years or 20 years earlier. And that mm. would have given us huge advantages in, in driving down the cost of renewables and, and really tackling climate change large scale already in the 2000s. Okay, good. So that's that, another... that actually the 20 years we have lost. Uh, yeah, another, well, not just 20 years. That was actually 36 years ago. So yet another forgotten uh, missed opportunity. But oh, yeah. what, what I'm kind of he- reading out of this right now of what you're saying is that the EEG of 2000, Germany's EEG, mm-hmm. it did something mm-hmm. really radical. So everything yeah. else before that, the Danes, the uh, the Feed-In Act, the German Feed-In Act of, of 91, the SOCs, PERPA, this was all based on either avoided costs or mm-hmm. the retail rate. And what the Germans came in in 2000 and said was none of this is actually related to what the actual investment costs. And so what exactly. we, right. So what we need to do is tie the rate that we pay to what the systems actually cost, which of course in healthcare is a no brainer, right? Whereas all of this other stuff was just haphazard. If it happened to cover your cost, you built, if it didn't too bad. Yeah, exactly. And that was really the revolution of the EEG 2000 in Germany, um, that the policymakers had the guts to say, okay, we, we're just going to look at the cost, even though we don't have a 100% certain understanding of the cost structures of all of the technologies, because they were also setting prices for less material technologies, such as geothermal, they were saying, okay, we'll just take our best guess in a way. Mm-hmm. And then we fix the prices and we pay them for a 20 year period. Mm-hmm. And that was, that's, it's not trivial. So I, even, I, I think it's not trivial in all of the settings, even in the healthcare sector. I think there's always either some overpayment or some underpayment or however you, however you want to term it. Um, but it was really crucial for the renewable energy development that one legislator actually took this. Mm-hmm. And I actually have to um, say the Germans, once again, were not the first, even though the EG always gets all. Okay all of the benefits for that. There was actually a law in Spain from 1998, uh, the Real Decreto, I think 2818, which already set these um, types of prices for solar PV. So they were actually um, two years earlier and had a very similar policy. However, they didn't Hmm. guarantee tariff payments for 20 years, but they had the guts to to have solar PV um, prices, which really reflected the cost of solar PV. So they were at that time five times higher than Hmm. the than the, the retail the rate yeah. for, for wind energy. You know, today Germany has a reputation of the energy transition, of being green and so on. But what I've just learned from David is that we haven't invented feed and tariffs. There were the Danes, there was Purpa, there were California, there was Spain... Yeah, so I got here as a, an exchange student from the States, uh, originally just for one year, um, in 1988 the first time, and then in 1992, and really around that time frame, so around 1990, 
Um, I, I mean, I think I came over here thinking that the United States was the environmental country, right? Um, and Germany was the country of autobahns with no speed limits. And, you know, I don't remember when you guys got rid of leaded gasoline, uh, but it was later than the United States did. Um, and so maybe because Americans always think they're better than everybody else, I certainly thought that we were more environmental than, than Germany. Um, there was one other thing that he said, and that's that, you know, these expectations about um, rising oil prices, when that didn't come to pass, that really killed wind power in uh, California in the 80s. But that expectation, uh, you know, it's killed us several times. So I, I know just 10 years ago, uh, you know, we were saying basically oil prices are going to go up. Um, you need to switch to renewable heat in your homes right now because natural gas and oil is going to be way too expensive in 10 or 15 years. And it's not happening. So we're still kind of struggling with, um, you know, trying to pay for renewables with, you know, high oil prices. Wow, that's an interesting perspective. I'm just imagining how would the world look like if, you know, the let's say, a renewable revolution was kicked off in, in the US in the 80s. Mm. So I'm coming back to the question, what is bankable? Toby was saying the secret source of FITs, it's bankable. And how I understood David is that it's about ensuring a profitability for the wind power operators, that they have a long-term investment security. Yeah, there's, there's another word that when I first heard it, I thought, yeah, now I understand. The word is de-risking, so taking the risk out of something. We say bankable instead of profitable because we mean the banks, you can take this to the bank and they will give you the loan. And why will banks give you loans? Banks give you loans when they perceive the risk to be very low. And what they, what they want to know is, are you going to be able to pay this loan back? And so when we say that, you know, feed-in tariffs and these other policies made renewable electricity bankable, that's what we mean. They took the risk out, right? The risk partly being, you know, rising oil prices, yes, no. Um, they, they gave you some stable planning, and then the bank said, yeah, this is money in the bank. Here's the, here's the loan. Go have fun. Okay, so de-risking, but also setting the right price. And this will bring us to somebody who was responsible for passing it in the parliament, Hans-Josef Fell. Who is that man? Fell is the son of a Christian Democrat mayor. He's a trained teacher in physics and sports. <laughs> Again, another teacher. And he was a member of the parliament for the Green Party from 1998 onwards. He dedicated his career for renewables. And when he retired in 2013, he continued the renewable revolution. He founded the Energy Watch Group that is a network of parliamentarians and researchers. But let's get back to that very historical moment when he co-authored that German Renewable Energy Sources Act in the year 2000. He did this together with Hermann Scheer. He is um, a visionary social democrat. He passed away in 2010. Um, but back then there was a coalition of green social democrats in the parliament and they wanted to replace the grid feed in law and Hermann Scheer he had some influence on your life as well right Craig? Yeah well he wrote a book called Solare Weltwirtschaft uh, I think it's Solar World Economy 
in English, and I read it um, around 2000, I think. And uh, that was really the book uh, that, you know, after reading that, I decided I got to be involved in this somehow. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, I don't know what the book would read like today. It's 20 years old, and so much has changed, especially with renewables. But the interesting thing about Cher is that he actually came from a peace policy perspective in the 80s. And so he has, you know, just a really different sort of view of, of uh, why we need renewables. It was to keep the peace. Uh, specifically, he thought German heavy industry, we need to give them something to do. And so let's have them make wind turbines instead of, uh, you know, heavy stuff that destroys the planet. Yeah, I mean, his main claim was... If we replace nuclear and fossil energy, then we can also end conflict and war over the energy sources and finally bring back peace and also social justice. And for all of this, he won the alternative Nobel Prize. Later, he founded Eurosolar. That stands for European Association for Renewable Energies. So, Craig, what do we need to know before we listen to Hans-Josef Fell? Well, I mean, one of the interesting things here is that, you know, most laws in Germany, they come out of the various ministries, right? So you have these officials who spend their whole lives in the transport ministry or whatever, and they're experts on this stuff. And that's about two-thirds of the laws. About one-third of them come out of the parliament, out of the Bundestag. And the reason why more laws don't come out of the Bundestag is because actually politicians... They're not usually experts in one particular thing. They have to know a little bit about pretty much everything. And that's fine, right? So you have your expertise in the ministries and you have sort of your political awareness of, you know, the values, you know, that, that in society, that's represented in parliament. And this particular law was written by the parliamentarian, so it was one of the one-third exceptions, and that was kind of part of why this revolution was possible. Um, everyone I've talked to has said that if the experts in the ministries in 2000 had been asked to write this law, they simply would have said this is not going to work. And so sometimes you need a kind of political structure that allows for alternative paths to be taken. So, Rebecca, that's what I would add. What do you think needs to be pointed out before we listen to the interview with Hans-Josef Fell? So, from all that we've talked about now, I felt like, wow, this is a very interesting historical time, and I really need to go back and read the documents from the time they were reading out the law in Parliament. And this is what I found out back then, Some of the parliamentarians viewed renewables as a like like an addition to nuclear uh, energy for the future. So somebody said, in a number of cases, renewables are just additive, not alternative. So another thing that made this law special was that there was a broad consensus in society. Um, somebody from the Greens mentioned that they were supported by associations representing farmers, by labor unions, by businesses, by churches, by the industry, and so on. And then Hermann Scheer, he said, I'm certain a lot of international onlookers will be watching this law. And now, as we know, this law got copied by 100 jurisdictions worldwide. 
Citizens were only mentioned once by Hermann Scheer. He said, this law cannot be implemented without citizens. And now we will listen to the man who began his speech in the parliament in 2000 with the words, this act heralds in the solar age. Here is Hans-Josef Fell. Hans-Josef Fell, thanks for coming on the show on the 20th anniversary of the law you helped create. I'm very happy to be here. It's also a great day for me. Who would have thought, though we certainly hoped it at the time, that the law would bring a global energy revolution? What were your expectations for the law? We had previous experience with some other laws, such as photovoltaic at the municipal level. So we knew what such a law had to look like for it to be truly effective. These laws really stepped up market demand in these municipalities. And so I knew that a federal law would have a similar effect nationwide. I understood math at the time and knew what exponential curves were. And everyone could see back then what exponential growth meant for laptops and mobile communication, which were really taking off. I realized that we could do this with renewables if we create the same kind of demand. We simply needed to create a law that would give investors a return. These old municipal predecessor projects were really small, though. How big was yours in Hammelburg in 1993? The resolution had a ceiling. It's amazing in retrospect. Of 15 kilowatts of solar, for which around one euro would be paid for each kilowatt hour. That's how the revolution started. And today people say, what? 15 kilowatts? I would put that on my own roof. It's ridiculously small. But it really reveals how we got started 27 years ago. And it wasn't easy to get these arrays financed. We're talking about an investment of around 100 thousand euros back then. Not many people have that kind of liquidity lying around. So we created the world's first community solar investment fund. 70 people were willing to join despite the great risks. I told all of them openly there was no guarantee that they would even get all of their money back. There were simply too many uncertainties, especially a lot of red tape. But people wanted to do it. They saw that something new was being created and they could help. So the general mood was one of change. Based on this experience from those solar community projects, you ran for German parliament and were elected in 1998. Was it easy for you and your colleague Hermann Scheer to get the EEG passed? Or did you meet with a lot of opposition? There was, of course, a lot of opposition. Angela Merkel, the previous environmental minister, opposed us, as did the opposition parties. 
What they had done up to then was basically research and development support and the Feed-In Act, which was practically worthless. We didn't just want to help solar get going, but all renewables. That was the paradigm switch in the EEG. For instance, geothermal hadn't been covered at all previously. It had only been the better-known sources such as wind power, biomass and hydropower. We argued that the parliament was the legislator and the government was the executive. It was a great moment for democracy. You sat down with industry representatives to get a better understanding of what the prices should be for solar, wind, geothermal and the others. How did these business people react to the idea of the government setting prices? Only one company opposed the idea, Siemens, which was the global leader in photovoltaic at the time. They did not appreciate what we were doing and did not support our efforts. All of the others, such as Qcells, Shell, and BP, supported us. They were looking to expand their businesses and were willing to think outside the box. The big companies were also ready to try out something new. Did Siemens say why it opposed your ideas? I mean, why would a company be against feed-in tariffs? They never said it so explicitly, but the reasons are obvious. Siemens was still selling nuclear reactors at the time, and they were becoming very committed to natural gas. They also had long been in the oil business and provided components for coal plants. They saw that renewables would compete with these other business sectors, so they made it clear to us, without ever explicitly stating it, that they didn't like what we were planning. New builds for solar exploded at the end of the 2000s. Germany officially expected one gigawatt of PV annually, but we had 7.5 per year from 2009 to 2011. So it seems that one weak point of the law is that the volume was hard to control. At least that's what some of the critics said when they wanted to amend the law. The only people who want to slow down growth are the ones who want to protect nuclear and fossil energy. Slowing down growth of renewables is active policy against climate change mitigation. We can only get the energy sector to zero emissions by 2030 if we have 100% renewables by then. Sorry, but it's not just the climate. Climate deniers or whoever. I'm not talking about climate denial. I'm talking about people with nuclear and fossil assets to protect. Okay, but I'm also going to have German energy journalist Jakob Schland in a later episode, and he's absolutely concerned about climate change and the energy transition. And if I can paraphrase his stance briefly, he feels we should be more careful about how much money we spend on the transition. In particular, we have to be careful about the impact on low-income households. 
So let me rephrase the question this way. Wouldn't it have been better to have some stable level of growth, such as 3.5 gigawatts annually, rather than 7.5 for a few years, followed by a much lower level? No, it's already wrong to believe that 7.5 is too much. If we're going to have 100% renewables by 2030, we need 10 gigawatts annually at the very least. And we need roughly the same amount of wind power as well. And that's why I say that any attempt to slow down the growth of renewables is anti-climate policy. If we want to protect low-income households, we should do that in social policy. We could change the design of welfare payments, for instance. But for goodness sake, we should not do what we have done, put an end to climate policy. And there's another aspect behind this as well. These people are saying that we can only pursue climate policy if this is dirt cheap. This is absolutely absurd. We are only supposed to have civilization if it can be done at a discount price? What an absurd idea. Let's put this in the European context. What do you think about the EU's Renewable Energy Directive, Red 2, of 2018? Is this just a toothless memorandum of understanding, or is it enforceable? Some parts of it are good. The main good thing is its support for community renewables. When ratified at the member state level, it would mean that financial and administrative hurdles would be done away with for community renewable projects. But Germany has failed to ratify it so far. And honestly, I don't see any other member state taking action on this either. So the only conclusion I can draw from all of this is that these governments lack the will to implement climate action. They simply don't want it. That's what I'm trying to understand. A lot of these member states have switched over from feed-in tariffs to auctions in the past few years. And it seems that Red 2 is currently being interpreted to mean that you cannot discriminate against community renewables within auctions. But community projects cannot work at all within auctions. Auctions are a big policy tool to incentivize a lot of market players to place their finished bids. But if you want to build a wind farm, you have to secure land leases, get construction permits, and all of this requires a lot of planning. You can quickly end up spending half a million euros. Now look at this from the perspective of a newly founded citizen group. You'll have to put half a million euros on the table. But now you also have to tell all of your fellow investors that you might not even get the contract. Nobody will do that. So by design, auctions are unable to accommodate community renewables. So how do we get out of this dilemma? You create a space outside auctions for projects smaller than 40 megawatts. Citizen projects have managed to reach roughly that size, so that's where I put the limit. Everything above 40 megawatts is fine for institutional investors, and auctions are a great way of organizing that sector. But below that level, we need things like feed-in tariffs and premium feed-in tariffs. These 
These are the policy tools that have allowed community renewable projects to get going. A lot of companies in the renewable sector support auctions, but all of these companies pursue gigantic projects. They want to secure their market share, and competition with smaller investors is just a nuisance for them. And indeed, up to 2015, around 90% of investments in renewables in Germany came from citizens and smaller market players. This clearly shows where the will to implement climate action comes from, citizens and smaller companies, not from giant firms that want to carve up the market amongst themselves. All right, that was my last question. Do you have anything you want to add? Yes, I would like to address all of the people who are frustrated about the changes in energy policy that Germany has implemented. Remember that we have made renewables the cheapest source of new electricity. And this should be a reason for people to want to build what they can, from individual households to businesses, large and small. They now all have a business case to switch to renewable energy. And if your federal government isn't helpful, you can take things into your own hands and make federal policy irrelevant. Okay, so Rebecca, there's this, there's this thing he says that I really want to kind of emphasize here. Right, So everybody in the EU looks at Germany and thinks they've got community energy, we just need to copy it. And when Hans-Josef Fell says he wants to address all the people who are frustrated out there, right, that is an indication that everyone who wants community energy in Germany is frustrated right now. So put that on the list of takeaways for our last episode. Right. My main takeaway from, from his interview was basically, well, this is all about shifting power relationships. I think this law, the EEG, has put pressure on the traditional business model of the energy corporations back then. Well, actually, can I tell you a quick story? There? I know you're not finished with all your takeaways, but just a quick story? Sure. Um, so, I mean, I tried to, in a very small way, I tried to help get uh, feed-in tariffs adopted in the United States, um, like from, let's say, 2005 to 2010 or so. And I came to a really interesting uh, insight during those years. So we were not supported by a lot of the larger solar firms in particular um, in the United States. And I kept asking my American like colleagues who were on my side trying to help get feed-in tariffs adopted, why would these companies not, you know, I mean, all we're trying to do is make the pie bigger for them, right? Make the whole market bigger for them. And again, these were the years when solar was booming in Germany. I mean, there were a couple of years there. One year, like around 2006 or so, Germany made up two-thirds of the global solar market for what was installed, okay? So huge stuff happening. And I felt like we were offering them this gigantic, you know, pie 
Um, and they were basically saying, no, no thanks. We, we're not worried about the size of the pie. We're worried about our share of the pie. And I thought, okay, what kind of sense does that make? And over the years, I came to realize that they understood something that we didn't at the time. The size of the pie in the long term, it is already set, right? So it is the size of like our energy consumption, however much energy we're going to consume. That's how much sort of, you know, power generation you get to build. And there's going to be a certain percentage of that that's solar. We don't know exactly how much that is, but there, there is an ultimate size to this. And so these companies, they don't, they know that the pie can't grow, you know, forever. And what they want is to make sure that the shares of that pie get divided up among people like them, okay? If you start making um, sort of exceptions for, you know, smaller businesses, uh, for, you know, homeowners to do their, their roofs and things like that, then you're basically saying they lose, I don't know, 20, 25% of the market right there. They don't get to develop that. I mean, you have to put yourself in their shoes. You've got a CEO and a CFO, and they want to sit down with the utility company and maybe a couple of politicians. They want to have five meetings, and they want to sign a contract for $100 million, right? and build one gigantic project. That's what they want to do. They want to sit there and also speak with people they can relate to, right? Uh, this is a sexy business deal. Whereas talking to thousands of installers who crawl around on suburban homeowner rooftops, um, you know, that, that wasn't as sexy. They, they didn't want to be in that business at all. And so there was this push, actually, among large renewable companies to just say, we want competition, right? Competition always sounds good. Who, who doesn't want competition? But what they mean by competition is we want to have equals. We want to have companies we can compete with. And all of you small, like community projects, you can't compete and we don't want you because you're just going to get some special benefits and take a part of this pie and the, you know, the part that we will then fight over with the other companies we compete with, um, that will just be smaller. Not making business with the small crumbs of the pie. Right. What got me thinking about this interview was the perspective on always looking at the price renewables have to be cheap. By, and then at the same time, forgetting what this is actually all about, you know, looking at the bigger picture, which is we don't or we cannot survive on a dead planet. Like, this is all about saving humankind, and why should we do this for the smallest price possible? So I think sometimes also when it comes to other climate action measure, measures, we tend to lose the proportionality. And I would say that in this public debate, we need to bring back the whole urgency and the common goal behind the measures. What made me kind of uh, sad was his judgment on Red 2 being toothless. Craig, will there be any more encouraging judgments in the future episodes? 
Well, I asked this question, is RED toothless to 10 or 12 people? I'm not going to promise you that, um, you know, it gets any more encouraging, but let's just say the, I mean, there is some consensus, but the, the, uh, the answers differ a bit, but we'll get to that in later episodes. Let's get back to a bit more positive news here. I was surprised, and this also goes back to my point about shifting power relationships. I was surprised that 90% of investment in renewables came from citizens in the year 2015. Well, it, just, just briefly, it wasn't in the year 2015. It was all the way, like everything up to 2015. Uh, and I think it was actually even 2016. That had been done by, I think 40% of it was like individuals, and then 11% was farmers. The companies that used to make up 100% of the investments in the you know energy sector, they only made up 10% of investments in renewables up to around 2015. He is kind of saying if government doesn't support citizens' energy, they don't really support climate action. And I find this interesting because in in the past years, we see citizens' assemblies making more ambitious um, decisions, actually. I mean, the most famous decision here is, for example, um, the decision by the citizen assembly in Ireland. Uh, they It was about 100 members. They were randomly chosen, but still fulfilling quotas on gender and age and region. And I looked up their decisions and the decisions that fit to our topic. Um, I, will, I will give you two examples. So 99% of the members recommend that the state should enable the selling back into the grid of electricity for microgeneration by private citizens. Yeah, 99%. Yeah, 99%. And the other recommendation was that 100% of them recommended that the state should support community energy at the greatest rate possible. And then we see some other citizens' assemblies in France and I think also in the UK. Okay, I haven't even heard about those. Yeah, they are, well, to come up with the climate measures in order to achieve the climate targets that were set by the state. Okay, so the one in Ireland is finished and the ones in France and the UK are, well, not finished yet. They're still meeting. Yeah, it takes, it takes some time. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, just based on the Irish examples you, you give, and by the way, you can go, there's a website online for the Irish um, Citizens Assembly, and you can see the recommendations they make for climate policy. And my main takeaway from all of that is basically that the citizens, when they get together and, you know, are informed and can, inf you know, inform themselves when they have the time and the forum uh, to, to get information and discuss these things, they come up with more ambitious proposals than I think our politicians would sort of dream possible. Exactly. And it proves that if they want to do popular policy, then they should do more ambitious climate action. If the population is informed. Maybe we should uh, add that as well. Um, yeah, so, uh, sorry, I keep interrupting. Do you have any other takeaways? Well... Looking back to the whole episode, I would say that, well, we it's not enough to have only goodwill and good morals, but we need a business model for increasing renewable energies. I also found surprising that it could have been the US in the 80s. Right. <laughs> and um, 
well, I I got to learn that you need to set the price right. And this is not by using the avoided cost, but rather asking yourself what is needed for investment. And then finally, we have to watch out for dangerous footnotes in the law. I mean, it, a law doesn't have to be long in order to rev revolutionize something. Yeah, yeah, good way of putting it. You have been listening to the Community Renewables podcast, produced by Germany's Renewable Energy Agency. The AEE. For the local Community Renewables project LICO. The project is funded by the European Union's Northern Periphery and Arctic Program 2014-2020, which is supported by the European Regional Development Fund. We would also like to thank the German Community Energy Alliance, BBEN, German website Telepolis and the Heinrich Böll Foundation for their special support. I'm your host, Rebecca Freitag. Freitag for future! And our producer is energy transition chronicler Craig Morris, advisor at the AEE. And we forgot to mention her in last week's episode, but the overdubbing of the interviews in German were spoken by Pascal Morris. And she also did some of the music in this week's episode. Otherwise, the music in this podcast is from the best Irish folk band ever from Japan, Tricolor. Please check out their music. Art is what makes us human. So support your local artist after all this corona business is over. And Craig, do you have a joke for us this week? Uh, well, it's not a joke, actually. It's a riddle. A riddle? Yeah, you want so, me to guess <laughs> yeah, the well, answer? Uh, every, I want everybody to guess. Okay. I want everyone to guess. So on Professor Yaras's website, right? You remember him? The crazy professor. The crazy yeah? professor. Yeah, that's the, the funny the, professor. The law guy. <laughs> um, he, we're going to have him on a later episode. And he has a riddle on one of his websites. It's actually a PowerPoint presentation from, like, I think the 90s. And it, it reads your mind. Okay. A PowerPoint presentation that reads your mind. So it's called The Magic Mishaela. And basically you're shown, I think, four or five cards, like playing cards from a deck mm -hmm. of cards. And you're supposed to pick one and say it out loud. So like king of hearts or whatever you pick one of the cards okay and then Michaela sort of guesses which card you picked Ooh. so the the powerpoint presentation basically shows you another five cards and says it wasn't any one of these so that's the riddle how does a powerpoint presentation from the 1990s guess which card you have Which card you picked? Maybe that PowerPoint presentation stole some portion of the magic from the Feet and Terrace. Or maybe the Feet and Terrace stole the magic from the PowerPoint presentation. We'll have to ask Professor Yadas. So if you think you know the answer, write mm -hmm. us on Twitter at PPChef. And Rebecca L. Freitag. If she hasn't changed it by now to Freitag for future, we'll have to see. We'll have to check Twitter on that. And see you next week. All right, everybody. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.